Hey, America Movements listeners, this is Adam here. Hey, we're going to apologize in advance. My dog, Chip, apparently really likes bourbon because he would not stay in his crate or do anything we wanted him to do today. And uh, you may hear him a lot in the background. And, uh, yeah, I see him right now. Uh, yeah, if you uh, happen to count the, the number of times he barks during the episode, we'll send you a gift card. Uh, anyway, uh, is something we'll, we'll fix moving forward. But uh, thanks again for listening and enjoy the show. got to be patient. You got to leave it alone, put it away in the rock house, and let nature take over. Authentic is cool once again, and that's come back around. We want to know where her product came from. Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey is where it's at. It's where the excitement is. It's not grabbing a bottle of beer out of a cooler. It's, let me pour you a glass of this. Let me tell you where this came from. Let me tell you the the story on this. It's history in a glass. Bourbon heritage is American heritage. Every phase of American history is reflected through bourbon history. Welcome to American Moments. This is Matt. And this is Adam. And thanks for joining. So, today's topic... Cheers. Cheers. Is bourbon. Is bourbon. Yes. One that's near and dear to my heart. It's my favorite my favorite liquor. And it just happens to be a, a purely American liquor. See, I, I thought you were just a raging alcoholic, and I didn't know there was such a great well, story Well, I don't discriminate. Oh, yeah. You know? Well, exactly. But equal opportunity. But if there's a favorite, it's this one. Awesome. <laughs> so, so... Why did why were you so adamant about picking this? Well, like I said, I really like bourbon. You know, I have been a, a bourbon fan for fifteen years, probably. Um, I've been to quite a few distilleries, and the unique thing about this liquor is it truly is an American liquor. Like mm-hmm. by law, it's an American liquor. Bourbon must be made in America. So, note, people, if you see a an English or Canadian bourbon, you're being hoodwinked. Right. Well, and and you know, Japan actually is. Japanese people are actually really big fans generally of bourbon. And so you'll see bourbons with Japanese writing in in Japan, but they're actually made here in the U.S. Because bourbons have to be made in America. But anyway, so getting serious, bourbon is, uh, I didn't realize how big of an industry it was. In Kentucky alone, it's obviously the the signature industry in in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. It's an 8.5 billion industry. Absolutely, seventeen hundred, uh, seventeen thousand. Sorry, five hundred jobs and an annual payroll in Kentucky of eight hundred million dollars. And aren't there like th- over three thousand distilleries in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, for just bourbon? It's it's amazing how fast it's grown mm-hmm. and, and boomed. First, tell us how it started. Well, I think what is bourbon named for? And you know that that bourbon? is bourbon. Wow. That that even that's eight years accent, of French. Yeah, every eight years of French. You do there. manages to sound somewhat Irish somehow. Yeah. yeah, that was that was good though. It's obviously named for uh, Bourbon County, which was named for uh, the Bourbon family, which is the ruling family in France until King Louis lost his head to the guillotine um, with the, the French Revolution. So there was an amalgamation of multiple counties in Kentucky that became known as Bourbon County. 
And it's not really known for sure. I mean, people assume that that's why it's named there because it's, that it was named that is because it was produced there. But it, there's not a real consensus as to why the actual uh, varietal was called bourbon. And you know what's interesting about that, Adam, is it's it's not related, but... You know, bourbon really took off the big, the first city it really took off in was New Orleans, mm-hmm. which is a, a French-based city mm-hmm. here in the U.S. Yeah. So that's just, I don't think it's ironic. That's not the definition of ironic, but it is interesting yeah, that it came from Bourbon it, yeah. County. And Bourbon County is, as we mentioned, located in Kentucky. And, and Kentucky had some really unique advantages for, for making bourbon specifically. Uh, the climate's really great for making bourbon, but it also, did you know it has the most navigable waterways in, out of any state in the United States? I did not know that. And guess where all those waterways end up? Where? Mostly. Anyway, New Orleans, as you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So Mississippi. It was So it became really easy for bourbon distillers to get their product down to, to Louisiana. You know, you mentioned the, and I think we'll get into it more, right, but you mentioned the unique characteristics of, of uh, Kentucky, you know, and... Um, the water, the waterways there, but also um, the weather there contributes to the aging and the flavor mm-hmm. of bourbon. Yeah, and g- going into to spirits in the United States, you know, prior to this, I mean, bourbon goes all the way back to late 1700s, right? And, but the Spanish had brought uh, brought liquors over to the United States, Cor- uh, or, or I'm sorry, the, what was formerly the Spanish Empire. You know, corn-based liquors. Corn-based. You know, a lot of the, the liquors in Europe were based on molasses or sugars. And the the most economical and easy-to-grow thing in, in the United States was corn. So kind of out of, out of a, I guess, happenstance of necessity, we started using the, the culture in the United States through the, the Spanish and through the Native Americans right. was to use the local maize or corn for, for a basis for their, their liquor. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I wouldn't say it was it was necessarily bourbon at that time. It was definitely moonshine. Yeah, but it was <laughs> it was the basis of what becomes bourbon later. <laughs> okay, so you have all these kind of you know, it's not just bourbons, but it's rye, mm-hmm. different varietals, barley. Yeah, exactly. And they're all kind of happening in, in parallel at this point. And the first distillery was opened in by Evan Williams in, in 1783 in in Kentucky, mm-hmm. um, and that was the first commercial distillery but there's a lot of it's kind of important to talk about the culture around uh around whiskey in in the rural areas so there's obviously urban distilleries which are a lot more high capacity uh can can move a lot more product but hard currency wasn't that prevalent in Mm -hmm. and the alleghenies in appalachia so it was really tough to trade corn. It was a perishable good. Beer was to, didn't have, there was no pasteurization at this point. So there, it didn't keep very well. So one of the most economical ways of, of uh, trading for, for other goods and services was in whiskey. So right. people would distill their own whiskey at their houses and use it for barter. Right. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't distillers as you would see them now. It was everyday yeah. people that were creating these harsh moonshines basically you know that were corn based and as you said it you know i think that's a, an important point okay and, th- and that kind of go gives you a little bit of a background of how whiskey operated uh in, in the back back country culture of the united states mm-hmm. leading to after the revolution the whiskey rebellion because yeah. our country was was strapped at that point after the american revolution and we needed to figure out a way to to make money off of uh, off of excise taxes and the yeah. farmers did not like having we didn't. We did not like having the government tell us that we were going to be taxed on our whiskey, and we rose up. We were talking about um, 
that whiskey was a way of preserving this perishable good mm-hmm. corn. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, whiskey is not the same as corn, right? It's mm-hmm. not a food, but it was something that was viewed as medicinal okay. back in the day. You know, people th- would take whiskey to... Um, Wait, it's not medicinal? No, it's not. It's not, Adam. Oh, boy. It sure makes you feel good, but the next day, <laughs> it does not feel good. <laughs> I think we should cheer again to that. All right. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so, you know, there, there there was obviously scotch from from England. A lot of imports you know, were happening with uh, English liquors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we started to, to get our own identity as, as a country with our own brand of, of whiskey, which became bourbon and rye and, and, and what have you. So do you want to go into kind of... A yeah, more on what whiskey actually is, and or bourbon. bourbon. Yeah, um. absolutely. Well, bourbon whiskey has some unique characteristics. It is a whiskey. It's called bourbon whiskey, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some unique characteristics, and they're actually heavily regulated by the U.S. government. And we'll get into a little bit more of how that happened and why that happened. But specifically, a bourbon has to be produced in the United States. It can't be produced outside of the country. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be produced. In Kentucky, which people often think. See, I always thought it was Bourbon County. It had to be. It's not. It's anywhere in the U.S. You know, Kentucky and specifically Bourbon County do have a lot of distilleries. I don't even, I actually don't know if the majority are from there anymore with the explosion of bourbon popularity. But that was the epicenter and the, you know, the heart of bourbon country, Mm -hmm. which was Bourbon County. (laughs) Um, So again, produced in the United States. Uh, The other unique characteristic is that it's made from a grain mixture that is at least 51% corn. So the majority of the grain mixture has to be corn. Um, Usually the other components are rye and barley. We talked about that, but it has to be 51%. Um, and that fifty, that corn is what makes it sweet. You know, it's a unique characteristic of bourbon that it's sweeter than a Scotch or a, a whiskey, an Irish whiskey or an American whiskey. You know, one bottle of bourbon will have two to two and a half pounds of corn equivalent oh, really? in it. So it is heavily corn. And when you eat corn, it's sweet. You know, it's a vegetable, but mm-hmm. it's sweet. So that comes out in the drink. the The third character, unique characteristic, the third unique characteristic of bourbon is that. It is aged in new charred oak barrels. So you can't use previously used barrels. These have to be newly created barrels that are charred on the inside. And again, that gives it more of that flavor, that sweet flavor. Um, the next is there's a certain set of uh, alcohol proofs that it has to be to be a bourbon throughout the, the, dis- the distillation process. So it has to be 160 proof or less when it's ready to be aged, to be put in the barrel. Um, it has to be 125 proof or less when it actually goes into the barrel, and it has to be at least 80 proof or higher when it goes into the bottle for selling. An early example of beneficial government regulation to prove alcohol was simply to test and verify that the contents of a barrel of liquid was what it claimed to be. The process began in England around the 16th century. Its original purpose was not consumer protection, but rather to ensure that the state, read the king, collected the proper amount of taxes on the sale of the product. Alcohol called proof spirits was taxed at a higher rate. The first method was imprecise at best and involved soaking a gun pellet in the liquid and then trying to light it on fire. If it burned, it was classified as a proof spirit. However, as alcohol's flammability is dependent on its temperature, the higher the temperature, the more vapors the alcohol-infused solution will emit and therefore the more flammable, sometimes actual alcohol was passed off as something less and taxed at a lower rate. Nonetheless, frequently the product would catch fire and by that the authorities would know that the spirit 
spirit, usually rum, was at least 57.15% alcohol by volume, ABV, which at that time was classified as being 100 proof. Um, so those are some pretty distinct characteristics. You get other liquors like a vodka or a gin and they're a higher proof. Sorry, a lot of the excess parts are distilled out, um, whereas in bourbon they're left there for the flavor. Okay. Um, and then the last thing, which I think is probably one of the most important things, is bourbon cannot have any additives. So no coloring, no flavoring. It's truly um, just your mash distilled and aged in a charred oak barrel. Okay. So it's a it's really it's what gives it its flavor. It's unique. It's unique sweet flavor. It's been as you mentioned. It's been distilled since the 18th century here in the U.S. It's really attributed to the American self. It is again, it can be distilled anywhere in the U.S., but it, it the the epicenter is is the American self. You know, we're called American moments, right? And this one kind of this topic, while it's truly American, I don't think there's a specific moment where it was created. You know, there's a lot of old tales about how bourbon came about. Um, I thought I'd mention just a few of them because they're kind of interesting, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm picturing a, a guy who has this old vat of corn mash just sitting around and yeah, yeah. Well, there's a couple great stories <laughs> okay. like that. Let's hear it. So the first, there's a there's a gentleman named Elijah Craig, um, who was a Baptist minister minister in Kentucky, uh, and he had all these old oak barrels that he had used to hold fish and pickles that you could eat. You know, really stinky things, fish and pickles, right? And when he was done eating with them, he had all of this whiskey that he needed to store somewhere. And so he, to get the smell out, he charred the inside of the barrel to get out the pickle and fish smell and then put his uh, whiskey into it. And so that thus was born uh, bourbon with the charred oak uh, barrel. Did he call aging. Picklefish? Picklefish. Yeah. yeah, it's one of the best whiskeys out there <laughs> yeah. right now, picklefish. Um, you know, there's there there may not be a lot of truth to that, but that is one of the t tales. Another is not specific to people, but there was a an old tale about a poor farmer in Kentucky who had a, an unfortunate event where his farm burnt down, and all that he had left were these charred pieces of wood from his his barn, and so he formed them into a barrel to to transport the whiskey that was left over from his house. Um, and thus, bourbon was created. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of tales. Another one is there was a gentleman in New Orleans who really was was French, liked the flavor of cognac, and thought mm, maybe um, I will age this whiskey in a barrel, which is how cognac is aged, and thus bourbon was created. So there's a lot of old wives' tales. It doesn't really matter, you know. It, it just what matters is that it was created and generated in the American South and, and became what it is today. One person worth noting, though, is Jacob Spears, who was a, a Kentuckian who lived from 1754 to 1825, and he was really one of the first bourbon distributors out there. Uh, Jacob was kind of a jack-of-all-trades. Um, he was a horse breeder, a farmer. He was a dealer of bluegrass seed around Kentucky, so he had a lot yeah, of why jobs. Why does that sound nefarious? A lot of hats, right? Mm, yeah. He, <laughs> I know. Yeah, I probably was. Wait, um, did you smoke bluegrass seed back then, or is that just for for lawns? You could, I mean, you can smoke really anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess that's true. <laughs> I mean, we are in Colorado. Yeah, you can very, smoke anything. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, he was also a distiller, and he cre he made bourbon, um, and he made it uh, vast quantities of it. And with his two sons, 
he took this bourbon. He thought, mm, this is a good thing. I think I can sell it. Loaded it onto some um, boats that they owned on the Mississippi and sent it on down to New Orleans. And he is really attributed with um, introducing bourbon to New Orleans. And that's okay. where it exploded in the mm-hmm. U.S. Um, in that, that, that population epicenter. Um, and then... And from there, it took off. And we'll get into a little bit more about the history of bourbon, but I really want to talk, for those who don't know, how bourbon is made. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty similar to other whiskeys. There's a few primary steps that are made. The first is a mash is created. And so a mash is um, ground up rye, barley, corn, all together at a certain, um, you know, a certain percentage. Obviously, with bourbon, it has to be at least 51% corn. And water's added, and then it's stirred and heated. Um, and so as it's heated, that converts the starches of that the corn, rye, and barley to sugars. Um, and so that mash is then moved to the second phase, which is called fermentation. Um, so this mash is cooled, and then uh, yeast is added to it. And that e- that yeast eats all the sugar that was created, um, and it creates an alcohol. Mm-hmm. And there's sour and sweet mash, right? The bourbons I've only seen have been sour mash. Yeah. And it really, you know, I'm, I'm assuming it has to do something with the yeast that's used. Um, a lot of, sorry, a lot of distillers have really strong feelings about which yeast should be used. Um, the yeast can add different uh, textures and flavors well, to it, that mash. It looks, I think the sweet mash uses fresh yeast. So, mm. and, I, and I think that's what, what gives it more of a sweet flavor that's yeah. interesting yeah yeah you learn something new every day right? yeah yeah absolutely um so then after after that you move to the next phase which is distillation so now you've got this um basically this alcohol water mash mix and so you distill it um the first thing you do is put it in um what they call stills and basically that it's it's almost like a big vat with a really tall chimney on it mm-hmm. um and so they heat it they heat the mat what's i don't know if it's called the mash anymore but whatever it is after you've yeah <laughs> it's been uh, the yeast has done its job um so you heat it up and alcohol actually has a lower uh boiling point than water so as you heat it the water isn't quite at boiling yet but the alcohol is and um, the alcohol then, um, as it boils, it turns into steam, and it rises up into the still, um, up through this tall chimney, while the mash and the water stay on the bottom. So, you know, this, this alcohol steam rises, and then as it, it goes up this chimney, it cools, and um, it basically fall. it turns back into a liquid and falls into another vat. And so the alcohol is kept, and then the water and the mash are discarded, you know, and... Um, a lot of people that mash is used in other ways, you know, to feed cattle or for other things. But but that end product of that alcohol that's that's been turned into steam and then cooled and turned back into a liquid um, is generally then distilled again. Generally, um, there's no rules to that, but generally bourbon is double distilled, and so it's distilled. So the same process happens again to get out impurities, and then you're left with what's called the white dog, and it's this pure alcohol. Um, that is bourbon before it's been aged, pretty much. Is a bad one a black dog? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. White dog is pretty strong. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't have a lot of flavor. It really is just liquor, you know, without any of the nuances that bourbon has. Okay. And, you know, that's an interesting thing, too, because bourbon is a, it, it's a colored liqueur, but at this point it's white. 
um, what gives it that color is the aging. So that's the third piece. Um, this alcohol is then put into a barrel, a new, a newly charred oak barrel, and aged for you know four to I don't know eight years, nine years, um, to give it that distinct flavor and color. Okay. And then after that, it's taken out and bottled. Okay. And that's how you get bourbon. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, the barrier to entry is you've got to be able to wait for four to eight years for your first batch to hit the market. It's right. Not, it's not like Adam can just come up with bluegrass seed with bourbon and then just, you know, start tomorrow. So, in a lot of ways, it's kind of, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like wine because they say you don't buy a winery for yourself. You buy it for your children because that's how long it takes. I, yeah. I don't think whiskey's that or, you know, bourbon is that intense, but it, it's it's definitely a process. Absolutely. you got to really love it. Speaking about, of not loving uh, bourbon, let's talk yeah. about what happened to it during Prohibition. That sounds good. So, you know, you you covered a little bit how it started, right? Mm-hmm. And bourbon was very popular. Um, and Prohibition hits, 18th Amendment, 1920. And if you are interested in learning more about Prohibition... We actually did an episode. That's of right. Yeah, we really need to branch out. I feel yeah, <laughs> liquor base. We yeah. know we stick to what we know. Yeah. So we, we, in all seriousness, we did do an episode on prohibition and the Sam Valentine's Day massacre, and we go a lot into the nuances of prohibition. But yeah, uh, yeah. which is a good one too. Yeah. But anyway, prohibition almost killed bourbon. A lot of the distilleries shut down because they didn't have. They obviously weren't generating. They weren't creating cash anymore because people weren't buying the bourbon. Well, and you think about it. Even when Prohibition went out, yeah. there's that barrier. There's that spin-up again. You know, all the beer producers, mm-hmm. they're back up and running because it doesn't take eight years to age That's a, very good a point, Bud Light. Yeah. You know, yeah. Or, or Bud Vice or whatever it was back then. Bud Vice. Yeah. Bud exactly. Vice or... Yeah. That, did that sound Irish? It did. It did. I'm going to keep trying. It's a, a, the leprechaun has made its way into this episode I am as Irish. Well. Yeah. Anyway, um, some of the distilleries moved out of the country. A few moved to Mexico and continued to create or continued to distill bourbon. Um, a lot of them went kind of backwoods, you know, moonshine-like into the backwoods distilled there. Um, there was also what was called, and we I think we talk about this too in our other podcast, but the Volstead Act mm-hmm. that allowed, it was a medical loophole for liquor, um, which allowed doctors to prescribe up to one pint of whiskey every 10 days for medicinal purposes. So that kept some of them alive. Yeah. You know, and there was bootlegging, obviously. And there was, uh, you know, the main way it continued was through this Volstead Act. The American Medicinal Spirits Company was formed. And what what this company did, it was a, it was some brothers, I believe, that created it. And they bought the names for some of the old bourbons. You may have heard of Old Crow Medicine. Mm-hmm. Old Crow was one of the, the oldest bourbon labels that was bought and distilled during Prohibition. Yeah, so old, you know, there's Old Crow Medicine, the band, right? They play that song, Wagon Wheel. Staring up the road, pray to God I see headlights. I made it down the coast in 17 hours. Picking me a bouquet of dogwood flowers. And I'm hoping for Riley, I can see my baby tonight. So rock me, mama, like a wagon wheel. Rock Anyway, the the point was that bourbon almost died during that 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 the, the bourbon almost died during prohibition, and the thing that really kept it going was the Volstead Act, 
And also bootlegging. Ironically, the Volstead Act really kept it going. And then they, how many licenses it, did they give out for production? I don't even know. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. But in relation to that, there is a gentleman named. His name is George Remus, who's he who is attributed to really keeping bourbon going during that time. So George Remus was a highly regarded Chicago lawyer. Now think about what I say there. Highly regarded. Chicago lawyer during Prohibition. Yes. So George Remus had some bootlegging clients, and he realized something. He realized realized that his clients were richer but dumber than him. He sought to capitalize on an opportunity. He moved to Cincinnati, and uh, Cincinnati was, was within 300 miles of almost all the distilleries within the U.S. at that time. And he purchased a lot of these old distilleries that were not useful anymore, and he also purchased a bunch of pharma- pharmaceutical companies in the area to exploit the Volstead Act. So um, one thing to mention is because there was all this bourbon that already existed, you know, even when Prohibition happened, there was four years, eight years of aging still happening. So there was all this, uh, this liquor that was still there. People were still distributing illegally in the woods, and people were getting that. And there was also, this was before bourbon was restricted to the U.S. only, so it was also being made in Mexico. So there was a lot of bourbon still in the country. And so what the government did was try to collect it all, categorize it, and store it so it could only be used for medicinal purposes. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna ask is the. I wonder if there's like a vintage Mexican bourbon from the, the time. I, I mean, that's got to be, be pretty amazing. That, that's got to be pretty cool to have in your in your uh, liquor cabinet. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to look for that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, back to George Remus. He um, really took advantage of this. So he would. Um, he had this pharmaceutical company. He would get permits to use this whiskey that the government had collected and categorized for medicinal purposes. And as as the trucks would load it up for his pharmaceutical company, he would have his men rob the truck of the whiskey, and then he would bootleg it himself for money. So in a lot of ways, it's what a lot of pharmaceuticals do, companies do today. <laughs> I didn't say it. You said it. <laughs> you know, he really kept bourbon going. He he was a bootlegger that focused primarily on bourbon in, in the, the Kentucky, well, Ohio well, I gotta area. I got to assume that he... He linked up with Rothstein and and all those guys. Uh, did he? Or? No, no. He it, he's an interesting guy. So he actually, the Great Gatsby, is loosely based on his life. He had a really? very hedonistic lifestyle. He ended up in prison for bootlegging for two years. He and while he was there, interestingly, not related to Bourbon at all. But while he was there, um, he only went to prison for two years, though. But unfortunately for George, while he was in prison, his wife took up with the corrupt prosecutor who prosecuted George and sold off all his assets and took basically all his money. So when George got out of prison, uh, he realized his wife had done this and taken all of his belongings. So now he was an ex-convict and had no money. Uh, And his wife wanted a divorce. Well, on the way to the divorce, George decided to take his vengeance and shot his wife and killed his wife. Wow. And then George went to prison for for murdering his wife. So George's, George's life ended poorly. But he did. He is. Con- <laughs> he is one of the main contributors why we're to, drinking I love, bourbon today. I love how you're trying to make like a silver lining on. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cheers to George. I'm not going to cheers yeah. to George. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how that's how bourbon managed throughout Prohibition. In 1933, the Twenty First Amendment was passed and Prohibition was repealed, 
and bourbon distilling took off. Again, this was before there were any rules around what bourbon is, but people liked the whiskey and they liked the sweet flavor. Like it was easier to drink than a hard scotch or a really smoky American whiskey. Uh, so it's people started distilling it all over the world. Um, it resulted in varying degrees of quality and taste, and there really wasn't bourbon was losing its distinct distinctiveness. So. 30 years later, in 1964, there was actually an act of Congress that was passed that defined what bourbon was and declared it a distinctly American product. Do you, you know who the, the Supreme Court Justice was on that? Who was it? Taft. Was it really? Former President Taft. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think I read that, actually. Hey, that's he finally amazing. got what he wanted. He got to be a, a Supreme Court Justice. I think this is the third time we've talked about Taft in a... I think so. That's yeah. amazing. It always comes back to Taft. It always comes back Russia. to Taft, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was passed, right, in 1964. But um, kind of at the same time, you think about 1964, and that was really counterculture counterculture was becoming really popular. Um, And bourbon was an old drink. So it it started to become really uncool to drink bourbon. People started drinking more wine, more More beer. More wine, more vodkas, more Mm -hmm. gins, Mm -hmm. you know. And you saw that for 20 years, all through the 60s, 70s, early 80s. It seems to me you have excellent reading taste. Where there's life, there's fun. Have you read the label? Let me put it this way. Do you know of any other beer so proud of its ingredients? It prints them plainly on every can and bottle. Next time, make it Bud. Budweiser, king of beers. Bourbon was not popular. You know, you'll interestingly, you can actually see ads from some of these bourbon distilleries um, that survived during that time where they would sell clear bourbon. Like they would distill it so much that it would take all the color out. Oh and that wasn't bourbon. You know, no. you didn't have the same flavor profile, but they were trying to fit a need. Right. You know, during this time, a lot of uh, distilleries shut down. There, there'd even be like large alcohol companies that would buy these distilleries and just shut them down because there was not the desire for bourbon. Right. Um, well, in the early 80s, something changed that brought bourbon back to the forefront. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. Trickle down, right? Trickle down bourbon mm-hmm. economics. <laughs> Trickle down bourbonomics? <laughs> bourbonomics. Uh, no, Elmer T. Lee, who was the master distiller at uh, the Booker Distillery. Uh, Colonel Booker was the president there. I don't know a lot about him, but I know he was a big personality. And he was looking for a way to um, make bourbon popular again. Um, So at that time, before that moment in time, bourbon barrels, um, before they were bottled, were gathered. So all the barrels that, that were ready to be corked and bottled at the same time were brought together and everything was poured into one vat. So everything was mixed to create a common flavor, mm-hmm. um, and then it was bottled. So what the their master distiller, Elmer T. Lee, realized was, and we, we mentioned this briefly before, but when you age a liquor, a lot of, the, of nature and the environment around affects how that f- tastes. And he realized that what you call the honey barrel, honey barrels, right? And that's like the sweet 
the sweet spot, the barrels that age perfectly and you get this really delicious, pure bourbon. And so he thought, well, I think we should bottle it per barrel instead of mix it all together. And so um, he did that and he created what's called Blanton's Single Barrel Bourbon. And it was the first time um, there was a single barrel, what we call small batch now, that was introduced to the market. It, it basically was where small batch was born and it took off because that bourbon from that those honey barrels was amazing and people liked it and the natural deliciousness of it is what made it popular again. And I think also the uniqueness where you say small batch and there isn't very much makes people want it more. So um, that's you where... You can come. Fear of missing out. Yeah. It brought bourbon back. Completely. Yeah. It brought bourbon back. And so Blanton's was the first. A couple distilleries that you may or may not have heard of wild turkey and maker's mark i don't know if you've heard of them yeah yeah but they really latched onto this and that's they started doing that with all of their bottles wild turkey and i had a falling out during college yeah yeah irreparable i know i can't do it anymore (laughs) you know i was on a bowling league a fun drinking bowling league and if you get three strikes in a row it's called a turkey and so we would we would make anyone who got three strikes in a row do a shot of wild turkey did they quit the team immediately after? No, but they definitely got worse after that yeah, shot of Wild sure. Turkey. Yeah. But anyway, um, back in the 80s, you know, Maker's Mark and Wild Turkey saw that this this could be a, a competitive advantage. And they really almost had a grassroots marketing campaign where the distillers went around to, um, to other liquor stores and distributors and bars even and talked about these small batch, single barrel bourbons that were delicious and showed people this. And that really took off. And... And from there, bourbon started to grow again. Cool. Yeah. I'm trying to, to map this to my own life, you know, noticing. I feel like in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been just a renaissance of bourbon. I would agree. I mean, it's it's amazing. Cocktails now, I mean. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, some of my favorite cocktails are, um, you know, the old-fashioned. Manhattan. The mint julep. Yeah. Well, obviously, another K- Kentucky staple. But, I mean, you know, I, re- I do remember every year going to a Kentucky Derby party, having mint juleps, loving them that day, yeah. hating my life the next day tomorrow because it's so sweet. But, you know, there's there was Jack Daniels, there's Jack and Cokes, but it's really become a, kind of like a wine industry now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's – so I'll, I'll get into some of the numbers. In the last 10 years, the, it's up 69% in, in, in production. So – between 2009 and 2014, U.S. bourbon and Tennessee whiskey supply revenues grew by 46.7%. That's unreal. So the biggest growth was in the super premium sector, which is kind of what you're talking to, the exclusive. Yeah. Uh, Happy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, whiskey market, which grew 137% be- between Holy 2009 cow. and 2014. Yeah, so again, the, the fear of missing out market uh, has been the fastest growing, which tells mm-hmm. you a bit about the... But it tells you a bit, a bit about the, the, the consumer, right? Yep. Yeah. Well, I got to mention too these these a bourbon consumer, which I am also a bourbon consumer. They're very they're very finicky about their bourbons too. You know, Maker's Mark, which is one of my favorites and one of the larger bourbon distillers in the country. Had there's a lot of demand, as you mentioned, people really enjoy it. Um, and so I think it was last year or two years ago they decided to um, water down. The whiskey a little bit so to go from uh 90 proof to 84 proof so not that different you know you, it was probably negligible in the taste but it it uh, at a volume it gave them a lot more to sell okay right and yeah. they did this and i think it was maybe two weeks later they went back on it because there was such an uprising from uh, maker's mark aficionados 
that they um, there it was like New Coke. Yeah, it was a revolt. I mean, they switched back. Let's see, it was actually one week. Um, they went from ninety to eighty. They were going from ninety proof to eighty four proof. So not that different. That's like forty five to forty two percent liquor. But people got so upset about it that it was it was screwing with Maker's Mark, and, you know, and the flavor of Maker's Mark that they had to go back to the ninety percent after one week. They didn't. They after what? Like, I wonder what that. I mean, was there pitchforks and and uh, you know flaming torches and there could be. I mean, I mean that's a quick reverting of it. I got to yeah. imagine there wasn't really a marketing campaign around. <laughs> hey, we're we're diluting <laughs> your favorite product. Let me just you know. But let me just read this letter that they wrote after one week. <laughs> Dear friends, since we announced our decision last week to reduce the alcohol content of Maker's Mark in response to supply constraints, we have heard many concerns and questions from our ambassadors and brand friends. We're humbled by your overwhelming response and passion for Maker's Mark. While we thought we were doing what's right, this is your brand, and you told us in large numbers to change our decision. You spoke, we listened, and we're sincerely sorry we let you down. Effective immediately, we are reversing our decision to lower the ABF of Maker's Mark and resuming production of 45% alcohol by volume. Wow. Like in one week. And then they added this, and this this, um, gets back to what you were saying, Adam. The unanticipated dramatic growth rate of Maker's Mark is a good problem to have, and we appreciate some of you telling us you'd even put up with occasional shortages. We promise we'll deal with them at, as best we can as we work to expand capacity at our distillery. So that tells you that tells you that the type of fans yeah, yeah, they very want, discerning. They very discerning. They'll put up with not having it rather than having something that's a subpar. No, it, it, it's just amazing. I mean, because uh, I mean, wine obviously is is is, mm-hmm. is another demographic that I kind of would compare this to, but I think even more so because I feel like wine drinkers are. You know, they can be pretty finicky, and, yeah. and what's weirder is better But uh, and to some people. but I think it's a more graspable market, too. Like, there's not as many distilleries. So, like, you know, in wine, there's many, many really good wines. Everybody knows, you know, if you know anything about bourbon, you know what Pappy Van Winkle is. Everybody knows that, right? And if you know, if you know wine, you know Sutter Home. Yes, and, <laughs> and Yellowtail. <laughs> hey, don't knock some Yellowtail. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so... You know, like we mentioned, small distilleries are surging. That was so pretentious that we just threw out, by the way. I'm okay with that. Okay. Yeah, right, I'm okay with right, that. Right. Yeah. Uh, small distilleries are surging with a record 500, and, and this was in 2015. Okay. There were 500 in operation with another 250 more Amazing. on the way. It, and that was in 2015. Yeah. So as with everything now, everything's organic. Mm-hmm. There's farm to distillery movements. Um, so a lot of the, and it's, it, I think it's cool. I don't think it's, I don't think it's, you know, all hokey. I think it's it's really cool that they're trying to locally source products and things like that. But there's a stamp that you can get if you're a farm to distillery. Uh, yeah, I don't amazing. Know what that means. So going back to 2015, Seattle was the biggest uh, micro distillery market in the United That's States. That's interesting. I didn't know. With that. 24 micro distilleries. Seattle. Seattle. Washington yeah. is the new Kentucky. No, <laughs> that was 2015. <laughs> Just to show you how quickly things have changed. Denver, where we are, oh. now, and is not it's not the capital, but it's just shows we now have fifty over fifty in Denver alone. Okay? Yeah, well, Leopold's has a bourbon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Stranahan's, and it's just growing so fast, hmm. and it's not just uh, people in the U.S. Uh, it goes way beyond the U.S. sales. Do you know? It's funny how uh, you know there's a circle of whiskey, you know, between us and the English. You know, mm-hmm. we used to Im- import all the Scotch. 
they are the biggest consumers of our bourbon mm-hmm. outside the United States market. I love bourbon. I mean, it's a personal thing for me, but I just love bourbon. I like it better than whiskey and scotch. Yeah. Well, so their their taste has exploded. So in 2007, we were exporting about a billion dollars okay. uh, a year to the United Kingdom. And 2014, it surpassed 1.56. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's not doubling in seven years, but it's it, it, amazing. It, it, pretty good for a niche product right so it's in other markets you know russia brazil mexico india mm-hmm. that was a surprise to me uh hmm. po- poland are really driving it poland really yeah poland. i think of poland as a vodka country right well you know that's, that's a middle finger to russia i think you have all this wonderful vodka well, we're gonna drink. i think it's i think it's a middle finger to poland to think that vodka is <laughs> only from russia because Polish, fair, fair. Poland, Polish people know how to make vodka. Wow, wow! You just out middle fingered me. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Just double, double finger back at <laughs> Both you. Both barrels. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so again, the discerning, the discerning, uh, you know, consumer in Europe is yeah. is still a fear of missing out consumer. Whiskey is supposed to go up eight point eight uh, percent every year, and unreal. But bourbon is supposed to rise by nineteen point three percent. Year over year, you know it's interesting. Just anecdotally, there and mm-hmm. sorry to interrupt you, Adam, but no, you're not. You go to a bar now, and you know, really big thing now, trendy thing. And I know about trendy things because I have a five month old and a two year old. I'm always out. You're hip. I'm always yeah, out. You're hip. I'm always out. Yeah. But cocktail lounges, mm-hmm. you know, they're really big things now. Even here in Denver, where beer is god, you know, cocktail lounges are big. And you go out, and they used to be there was one whiskey drink. One whiskey cocktail and many vodka and gin cocktails. And now there's a lot more bourbon cocktails, you know. And those bourbon cocktails were always either a old-fashioned or a Manhattan with a slight twist. And now there's a lot of different things. The other day I actually saw a bar in Denver that had bourbon jello shots. And it was almost like a creamy jello shot. It didn't that sound sounds terrible. delicious. That sounds terrible. But it has to be okay if they're selling it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but and I mean, also the the tourism. I mean, so obviously we get, we can tour a distillery, but now mm-hmm. obviously Kentucky's like a little Napa Valley for yeah yeah. Even though I've been to Maker's Mark, you know, I'm in a Maker Maker's Mark ambassador. I told you I'm a little obsessed with bourbon, right? Do, do you where get a special jacket for that? Or I get a tree. I get, they send me a Christmas present every year. You know, like, I don't know if they want everyone to know that, but if you're a Maker's Mark ambassador, they send you a little thing. Last year, I got a little, um, a knit Christmas sweater that goes on the the neck of my bourbon, my Maker's Mark. This is getting creepy now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, well so the, you can go, it's there, I just there's organized, bourbon. you know how when you go to Napa, again, yeah. comparing to the wine industry. Oh, that's what I was yeah, going to say. You're, you, yeah. you can go and take tours and, you know. So, you know, Adam, I went to, I've been to the Maker's Mark Distillery. And it is in, I think it's in Bourbon County. It's one of those counties, but what's ironic is that county is a dry county. What? So when you go to the Maker's Mark Distillery, you can't sample the bourbon because it's a dry county. That's kind of a... They they get around it. Like, you can put bourbon in chocolate balls, and then you can eat it because it's, it's food as opposed to bourbon. So they give you chocolate balls filled with bourbon, but you can't sample the bourbon because it's a dry county. And... And this is just, I mean, it's just, again, anecdotal. I don't know if you'll enjoy it, but as you drive up to the to the uh, Maker's Mark Distillery, all the houses, most of the houses along the way, 
have signs in their uh, yards that talk about how alcohol is bad and against what God wants, and Jesus wants you not to drink bourbon. But at the same time, all these people are benefiting from the tax benefit of having Maker's Mark Distillery in your county. Yeah, I, I gotta gotta assume that that's mm-hmm. probably a lot of them yeah. are employed by Maker's very, Mark. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah it's a fascinating beverage. Yeah. I, I definitely like it. Let's cheer with our Michter's Single Barrel here. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brought to you by Michter's Single Barrel. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I hope I hope you're ready to go drink a little bit now. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I, we live here in Denver, as we've told you before, and one of the big events here in Denver is the Great American Beer Festival that comes every year. It's got three thousand brewers, and I'm going that to that tonight. So it's it's kind of funny that I did a bourbon podcast today, and I'm going to go drink beer. So tonight. I, if I get texts from you tonight, I should uh, they'll be not very coherent. That's absolutely right. Yeah, but I do have to say, you know, bourbon you can only age in new new oak barrels, right? So a lot of those used oak barrels um, are bought by breweries across America right mm-hmm. now. And so tonight, I'm going to try to have as many bourbon aged, bourbon barrel aged beers that I can. I am so sad for Michelle. Michelle's coming too. Okay, all right. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, we're gonna get drunk in about 15 minutes because of our. We have a four month old, so we don't we don't do anything right now, but try to make her sleep. So. <laughs> Well, well, thanks for joining us today, everybody. Now, on that note, um, you're welcome for that. If Matt, if Matt survives the night, we'll see. We'll see you next yeah. month with another. Thanks episode. so much for joining us. And uh, again, if you want to help us out, you can give us a five star review on, on on iTunes or Google Play. If you do, send us a note, and Matt will give you a foot rub. Um, and uh, or or if you prefer, you can we'll give you a, a gift card for something else. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, we've also been getting a lot of cool uh, recommendations from listeners lately, and, and we do take those to heart. Please let um, us know. Did you know about the bat breeding phenomenon in Texas? Uh-uh. Well, okay, so one of our listeners uh, sent that in, and uh, we're going to have to do something about that soon. It was, it was pretty Excellent. Inter- interesting. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but anyway, guys, thanks for listening, thanks and so much. we'll see you next month. Sounds good. Cool.